Hello fellow survivors and welcome to another episode of At The End Of The Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur ex-scholologist Richard Orla. For those listening for the first time, perhaps you've managed to cobble together a working radio out of assorted electrical junk or something like that, this is essentially a travelogue of my train journey around post-apocalyptic England and also bringing you news, updates and whatever else might be useful. In the last episode, after encountering a number of quicksand traps which ensnare the mind of any who come across them, we found the source of them and after a quick exploration, the entire train, with a few exceptions, was under their power. For days, me, Zofia and a handful of the other people on board who had managed not to be affected discussed possible plans, but all came to naught. After a week I had all but given up and had begun to plan more long-term survival strategies. The captain and her forces, around 85% of those on board, had decided to leave the train and set up in the town. This was a decision that made virtually no sense, but clearly none of them were thinking clearly. It did however leave the unaffected in sole control of the train. The captain seemed only concerned with the box, and while they took all the weapons, they left all manner of useful equipment behind. We kept a careful watch on those who had left the train, and it didn't take long for them to start acting more like the gangs we had already encountered. They had daily ceremonies where the box was passed around between them and then given back to the captain. Those of us who remained on the train carried on as best we could. We had ample supplies and enough trained crew members to keep the train systems running. Sophia and I spent a lot of time keeping the young girl we had rescued safe. The girl had been a member of one of the various gangs that fought for control of the box, but had abandoned the gang when she thought she could have sole control of the box. We had managed to convince her to wear other things aside from the overalls her gang wore, but insisted on continuing to wear her gas mask. This was nothing to do with protection such an item might offer, as it didn't work, and was worn for purely symbolic purposes. When we had asked the girl her name, she had given us lots of different answers. When I had said she could pick her own name, this had led to similar confusion, with Sophia finally telling the girl her new name was Julia. Since she answered to this name, it seemed like she consented. We had to keep a constant eye on Julia, as she would try and steal the box whenever an opportunity came along, and considering their heavily armed soldiers guarding it, we thought it best to stop this. I had tried convincing the captain that she had been trapped by quicksand, that the desire for the box was a mental infection. Not only did she not believe me, she had grown worryingly aggressive when I persisted. I came to the conclusion it was probably best to stay out of the captain's way. Zofia had concocted a plan to destroy the billboards that were the quicksand, but there was no guarantee that people would return to normal if that happened, and the billboards seemed to be revered by everyone in the town and I was worried what the consequences would be. Once she had even suggested destroying the box itself, and I spent a long time explaining to her that that would probably be the worst thing we could do and made her promise not to try it. Aside from all these rather major problems, I had been suffering from the constant headaches caused by wearing the quicksand resistant goggles all the time. They allowed me not to be overwhelmed by the quicksand, but I am not good at dealing with constant pain, or pain of any length really. Occasionally, Zofia would raise the important, yet in my mind redundant question, of how everyone on board had been trapped by quicksand. My thinking had moved past why it happened, and onto what we were going to do next. Between those who were left, we had enough trained crew members to actually get the train going. But what then? 
and odd domesticity had taken over my carriage, with both Sophia and Julia moving in as we felt safer together. I took charge of most of the tasks. This was as Julia simply refused to do anything that didn't further her aims and get in the box, and Sophia remained in a near 24-7 state of alertness. And while I wished Julia would do more, I was perfectly happy with Sophia's contribution. I didn't want to die because Sophia was preoccupied with household chores. There had already been a few incidents which had required her more martial skills. Really, the only thing that kept me from suggesting that we take the train to get out of the town was Julia. She would not leave the box. It was that simple and we weren't just going to abandon her. It had taken some time, but Julia seemed to have finally accepted that we weren't interested in the box and just genuinely wanted to help her. I think it must have been years since anyone had cared about her. When we asked about parents, she didn't know who they were and was pretty shaky on the concept of a family. We each tried to educate Julia on typical family life and what society was like. Although given that Sophia and I each had radically different ideas of these concepts, as we were separated by a thousand miles in two centuries. It was when describing the idea of a home as a safe place to build a life surrounded by loved ones that Julia mentioned something that caught my attention. She said it sounded like the underground house and I asked her to explain more. Births, deaths and marriages. I have always liked doing the section on births, deaths and marriages as it manages to satisfy both those who want good news to cheer up, marriages, bad news so they get an accurate picture of this bleak world, deaths, and those who want a mixture of hope and despair, births. Births. Celebrated genetic engineer Dr. Misam Turan announced a successful birth of three clones of himself. Each clone will age at different rates until reaching a specified age and stop aging, the ages being 20, 40 and 60, and they will assist Dr. Turan in his research. Dr. Turan chose these ages to bring the best of himself, the energy and creativity of youth, the level-headedness of middle age, and the practice experience of someone on the verge of retirement. Deaths. His extreme sacredness, superpriest Daniel Kane died last week. Kane was the founder of Superfaith, an odd, if fairly harmless religion, best characterised by the exuberant enthusiasm and supremely optimistic attitude of clergy and followers alike. Super Priest Kane had predicted his rather unusual death four years ago. He died in a jet ski stunt involving fiery hoops, giant t-shirt cannons and specially trained swimming squirrels. Religious and political leaders around the world shared their condolences with Kane's followers, even if some did point out it was largely his own fault. Marriages Listeners will of course remember Arabella Turner, the sometime warlord and current prisoner on board this very train. Well, Arabella has been conducting a long-distance relationship with the, for lack of a better word, supervillain Nemesis, who is a prisoner in a maximum security facility in Argentina. Nemesis is best known for her daring attack on the CGA train that contained the first batch of paper money, which made her brief not only the richest person on the planet, but the only person with any money whatsoever. The pair have been exchanging letters for seven months, with Arabella proposing to Nemesis several weeks ago. And of course, she had to wait for an answer. Neither are allowed telephones or internet connection, and so the wedding was conducted via cumbersome three-way letter exchange between Arabella, Nemesis, and a CGA official. While I wish the happy couple all the best, I feel I should point out that Arabella was the prime suspect in the murder of her former spouse, 
but I'm quite sure Nemesis can look after herself. Julia described the underground house as a large building made up of many rooms containing pictures, books, beds and indeed many of the things you would find in a home. It sounded like something worth investigating. I spoke to Sophia and we agreed to go the next day with Julia coming with us. Not to help us find it, as her directions were very clear, but so as she wouldn't be able to try and steal the box. We left early the next morning. Julia took us straight to the site. It was in one of the less damaged areas of the town and the entrance had been hidden in a garage and as we looked down the hatch it was clearly an underground bunker. Sophia climbed down first to check it was safe but soon shouted for us to join her. When I climbed down Sophia had started placing lamps and safety flares to allow us to see. Sophia did say that it still seemed to have power but a lot of the lights and other electrical equipment was broken. It was pretty obvious even by just looking in the first room. This was a government bunker to secretly observe the town above. This would have been the old English government, not the central government authority, who I'm sure would never spy on people like this. Julia had said it sounded like a home, but really most of it just looked like an office. There was the standard cheap office furniture, desks covered in stationery and personal items, photocopiers and water coolers. There were rooms for the people stationed in the bunker to sleep in, extensive kitchens and even a games room slash library. Then there were the rooms filled with dozens of screens. Most were blank screens showing nothing, some had been smashed. A couple even had a blue screen with a logo bouncing around the inside. But several screens still worked, showing CCTV of locations in the town. It was certainly very sinister, and it increasingly seemed like this whole town had been some kind of awful quicksand experiment, just to see how far they could push it. People were killing each other over an empty box that had no special properties, so they would probably have been pleased with the results. Finally, I came to a set of rooms that seemed to be small offices for the most important staff. Each still retained a nameplate. Dr. Ethan Mendez, Dr. Parisa Kula, Xavier Langton, and Rachel Eldon. Presumably, if they were the people important enough to have offices, they were in charge. Doctors Mendez and Kula were scientists of some description. Their offices were full of journals and books with difficult to read titles, and I gave up trying to make sense of the notes they had left. With Langton and Eldon I had more luck, once I worked out the field they worked in. Advertising. It shouldn't have been that surprising. All the quicksand had taken the form of billboards, and however the science of it worked, having people who actually worked in advertising would have made sense. Advertising in the post-apocalypse has lost a lot of subtlety. It's a lot of blunt hard selling and really a lot of it is rather academic as often people don't have a lot of choice in what they buy. My understanding is that before the apocalypse it was an industry worth billions, maybe even trillions, and it was a very big deal. I learned a lot from their offices. Advertising jargon is difficult to follow but considerably easier than neuroscience. The town was a large scale attempt at manipulating the population, but for understandable reasons. Corcaster was safe, relatively safe anyway. The government wanted people to head there, a brand new town they had built in a hurry to house refugees. It had been the first of what the government had hoped would be many such towns, and the start of an organised pushback against the apocalypse. Obviously, it had gone a bit wrong, and it seems that they had gotten a bit too ambitious with the box. People arrived in Corcaster and had nothing to do. 
they had plentiful supplies but little in the way of police or administrators. The team felt that idle hands were the devil's playthings and wanted something to occupy the refugees. So they made the box, and importantly, the billboard quicksand advertising the box. The box was to be used as reward and punishment. Good, useful behaviour was rewarded with more time with the box. Bad, antisocial behaviour lost time with the box. Refugees were assigned into teams and competed to win the box on tasks like litter collection, and it was staggeringly, worryingly successful. Eldon had raised concerns but had been shouted down by her colleague and it wasn't until the first lynching took place that they all agreed that it was a problem. Angry at a member who they felt hadn't worked hard enough to win the box, his team had beaten him to death. The quicksand worked too well and in a matter of hours after the first murder, the town was in anarchy. Eldon and her colleagues watched in horror from their secure bunker. When Eldon and her team had asked for help from the English government, they had been told that they didn't have the resources to intervene. After all, news that people were dying was hardly unique to Corcaster. The town had been a failure and so resources were going to be put elsewhere. Of course, not long after this, there wasn't an English government at all and the town had been left to linger on with daily vicious gang warfare. And still, people kept coming. Newcomers would arrive and quickly be drawn into the fight for the box. It had proven too much for the small team still watching in the bunker and Eldon's notebook mentioned colleagues disappearing and even suicide. Eldon had been the last to leave, still furiously trying to find a solution to fix what they had done. The last idea she had was to steal and destroy the box, and obviously she had failed. But even Eldon had admitted she had no idea whether that would do any good. I couldn't find anything from after that, and as the box was still very much in existence, I had to assume she had failed. I personally was convinced that even if we managed to destroy it, they would, the people in the town would tear us apart, and quite frankly, I wasn't that dedicated. The bunker had been gently looted, the gangs taken all the food and anything that could be considered a weapon, but left everything else. Evidently, they had no need or desire for computers, desks or staplers, although having once been stapled by another person in an office altercation, I thought they had underestimated that item's deadliness. There was a scream from another room in the bunker and I ran to find Sophia and Julia. Julia was clutching a black box tightly in her hands and ran round the room in joy. We found another box, said Sophia. They had found various black pieces of material and as they were assembling them, Sophia had realised what they were making. It shouldn't have been a surprise really, as the box wasn't special. It was an ordinary item that Eldon and her colleagues had made special. I looked at Sophia. This means we can leave. I doubt what an additional box would really make much difference to the warring gangs, as I think unless they had one each, they'd still be fighting. As we walked back to the train, we discussed how we would leave the town. Julia had reluctantly put the box in a bag in case anyone was to see it and try to kill her for it, which they definitely would have. It didn't feel right just abandoning people in the town, but there was little else we could do. The CGA would not come to save us. For them, us running into trouble was not the signal to mobilise rescue teams, but to adjust the budget spreadsheet. In fairness, this would go on a long list of things the CGA needed to sort out, but it could be years before they got round to that, as they had hundreds of millions of people to worry about. We reached the train without incident, and called a meeting of those that remained, and pushed hard on the idea of leaving. Everyone agreed. Even Julia was happy to leave now that she had her own box. 
While we had enough people to run the train, we wouldn't have access to a lot of it. For example, we couldn't get into the basement. But as it mostly contained doomsday devices, that was probably for the best. As the remaining crew set about their tasks, I realised how exhausted I was and returned to my carriage. I noticed something was wrong before I opened the door. It was a smell, like cinnamon and sandalwood. It triggered a memory, but I couldn't quite place it. I walked in my carriage to see Mason Wright, head of the Wade Adler Company's English operations, sitting in my chair and drinking my whiskey, smelling of cinnamon and sandalwood. Hi Richard, he said in a jocular voice. I told you we'd be seeing you soon. For this episode's edition of Who's On Board, I am joined by a brilliant and inventive engineer, Dr Grace Young. Dr Young was part of the Scottish team that built the Stevenson system, the complex network of defences that separates England from Scotland. And I will be talking to her about the system and how Scotland fared during the apocalypse in general. Before I start the interview, I thought a little history of Anglo-Scottish relations would be useful for our listeners. Before the apocalypse, historically the two countries had had a difficult relationship. In medieval times, they were as often at war as at peace, and even when not officially at war, each country raided the other constantly. There were several attempts to peacefully unite the two kingdoms through carefully planned marriages, which fate just seemed to be against. The last real opportunity was after the death of Queen Elizabeth I, when James VI pressed his claim to the English crown. And well, we all know how that ended. In modern times, a far more amicable relationship existed and the countries were friends and allies. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Young. Please, Grace is fine. Well, Grace, could you describe the Stevenson system for our listeners? It would be my pleasure. Many people think it is simply a wall, but it is far more. The system runs just north of the border and consists of walls, fortifications, bunkers, minefields, force fields and just about every type of surveillance equipment going. On an average day 3,000 soldiers guard the system as well as 5,000 civilian technicians. It runs 99 miles from coast to coast, the tallest tower standing at 94 metres and it is considered one of the most ambitious engineering projects in the history of the world. Now, as a child, I lived in the northeast of England, and when we were forced to flee, we headed south, not north. So I never got to see the system being built. Sorry for interrupting, Richard, but there's something I want to point out. The Stevenson system was not used to stop people crossing the border. The system was built to accommodate handling refugees from England, and we took in over a million people. Yes, that is right and worth pointing out. My family headed south because at the time, directly north, were swarms of vicious and mutated wasps. Yes, I remember those swarms well. And of course, the Stevenson system did not prevent the wasps from making it into Scotland. That's right, and they were a serious problem for several years. The system was far from foolproof, but did stop hordes of zombies, rampaging kaiju, and any number of gangs of cannibals, and the things it couldn't stop, it would alert us to so we could take action. Scotland is often seen as one of the countries that best handled the apocalypse. Would you say this is accurate? More or less, compared to the outright devastation visited on some countries, Scotland fared well. We had problems. A lot of people died. A lot of people had to abandon their homes. But we were the third country to be officially classified as post-apocalyptic by the CGA, rather than apocalyptic. Perhaps the most famous incident involving the Stevenson system was the so-called Night of the Ten Thousand Infected. And I understand you were part of the team who dealt with this. Could you tell me about this in your own words? 
Certainly, it wasn't long after the system was made operational, a mass of people, probably not 10,000, but certainly thousands, were fleeing towards Scotland. We knew that within that group were several hundred people who were infected by a parasite that created a hive mind. It was a very intelligent parasite that wanted to lose itself in the crowd. Fortunately, there was a simple blood test that would reveal their infection. The problem was that we had thousands of people desperate to get through the border. Some other governments around the world, when faced with similar situations, have simply refused to admit refugees, even using their armed forces to stop people. Yes, and we were determined to avoid that at all costs. At the time, I assumed the government had a more drastic backup should we fail, but I had no knowledge of it. I have heard rumours that the Stevenson system does have several extremely devastating contingency measures in place, should it be breached. Is that right? Stories of huge stockpiles of napalm and that sort of thing. Well, the system has any number of countermeasures and I can't confirm or deny any specifics. But it was a mammoth task screening people and separating the infected. People panicked, tried to rush through, people accused anyone they didn't know as being infected and, of course, the infected tried to sow panic as well. How long did it take to get everyone through? Four days of non-stop work and, of course, once they were through, they had to spend time in our quarantine facility. What were you looking for? Just about everything. From something familiar like tuberculosis to any number of new and terrifying apocalyptic problems. Really, we didn't know everything that we should be looking for and just wanted to see if anything happened after a few days. And even then, something slipped past us. Somehow, a handful of the infected hive mind did get through and they tried to start a community in Selkirk. The army was called in and a lot of people died. I can't help but feel responsible for that. And what's happening with the Stevenson system now? Obviously it's very expensive to maintain. Are there any plans to shut it down? Dear God, no. Of course Scotland now falls under the central government authority and they have classified England as post-apocalyptic, but we still see a lot of activity on the border, so for the short term, nothing will change. Final question. While you were still assigned to the system, you were travelling on the train. What work are you doing now? I joined the train when it was still in France as the CGA wanted me to study the feasibility of similar projects to the Stevenson system on the continent and they asked me to stay on to help assess the level of destruction in England. Well Grace, thank you for your time. One of the most frustrating things about Mason is how amazingly handsome he is. It's hard to despise someone who looks like that. It's shallow, but it really is difficult. And it's not just his physical appearance. His posture, his haircut, and yes, even his smell. However, I was willing to put the work in to hate him. Mason gestured towards an empty chair which had a glass beside it. Take a seat. Have a drink, Richard, so we can talk. It's the height of bad manners to offer someone a seat in their own house, but as I didn't want to get into argument or etiquette, I decided to sit. Also, I had become aware of a dangerous looking gentleman just inside the door, and I didn't want to risk him intervening. Mason noticed my uneasiness and smiled. Oh, don't mind Cutter. We're all friends here. Right, Cutter? The dangerous looking gentleman mumbled something in the affirmative. I sat down and gripped the glass beside me, but didn't drink from it. What I was most worried about was Sophia returning, as that would end with two dead people and two alive people in this carriage, but I wasn't sure who would be which. 
Mason smiled a brilliant white smile and gestured to my drink. Have a drink. That'll make this more friendly. I asked if Cutler was having a drink, since he was apparently my friend as well, to which Mason chuckled. So, we've been keeping an eye on things on board, said Mason. I accused him of spying on me, which Mason conceded they did, but also reminded me that I did produce my own podcast about my life, so spying wasn't really necessary. Mason explained how they knew we were going to leave the town, abandoning the crew and passengers who were still obsessed with the box. We can't really let that happen though, Richard. You see, this train doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to you either, I snapped. But Mason disagreed. The Wade Adler Company had financed this train for years, and just because they and the government were in a state of disagreement didn't change that. Oh, you know, there's salvage law, said Mason thoughtfully. When I said that salvage law only applied to vehicles where there were no survivors, Mason nodded in a threatening way. What about those of us still on the train, I asked, and Mason said they wanted us to come along too. Obviously the crew would be useful, and most of the passengers had interest and skills and abilities. And then there's you, said Mason. We very much want to keep the podcast going. This has all been about me, hasn't it? I said sadly and gulped the whiskey down. Richard, don't be so self-involved, said Mason. A multi-billion more company is not solely interested in you. You're just one element. I looked at Cutter and then at the variety of weapons that hung from belts and holsters about his body. What will you do if I refuse? What will we do, said Mason laughing. Nothing. I know that people say life is cheap, so kill whoever bothers you. They're wrong. Death is the end of opportunity, and we've already invested so much. You say no, and off you go. What? Out into the apocalypse, I snapped. Mason let out an exasperated sigh. What, you want to drop you off somewhere safe? We're not a ride-sharing app. Well, yes, we do own a ride-sharing app, but that's not the point. If you say no, you're on your own, but we won't horribly murder you. Mason finished his drink and then smiled wildly. Okay, I'll give you the pitch. You'll have full creative control, more equipment, a bigger carriage, a real salary, the best selection of spirits that remains in the world. All yours. I looked out the window. What about everyone else? What about those out there? Mason chuckled to himself. You drive a hard bargain, Richard, but you got it. We'll fix them. Hell, we'll fix the town people as well, just a little extra. It's good PR for us. I didn't know what to do. This was the only way to save the people in the town. Otherwise, they'd just keep killing each other. Think about it this way, Richard, said Mason. Where's the government? He threw me a quizzical look. Are they helping you? No. Governments can't get things done. Yeah, you'll put up on some agenda item in five years' time, and they'll send out a fact-finding team who decides it's not cost-effective to rescue you. I hated to admit it, but Mason was right. I nodded quickly. It looked like for a second Mason was going to ask for more confirmation, but he shrugged. Well, that'll do for now, Richard. I don't know how you'll deal with the rest of the train, though, I said, knowing that anti-Wade Adler Company feeling ran high. Oh, we've already got all of them, said Mason, standing up. He took a mobile phone from his pocket and glanced at the screen. Yep, everyone, even Sophia. Mason gave Cutter some orders and he nodded. I glanced back at Cutter and it was just something as simple as his body language, but he had changed from an exceedingly dangerous looking man 
who was not away from crushing my skull, into a gentle but diligent protector. Mason had called someone on his phone before he had even left the carriage, speaking in rapid Portuguese, and I could hear his voice carrying through the open door. I sank back into my chair and glanced at the bottle of whiskey. So that was it. I worked for the Weird Adler Company. It didn't feel good, and I didn't like what they were doing to England, but I didn't feel I'd last very long out there in the post-apocalyptic world. I walked over to the window and could already see helicopters with the Weird Adler Company logo on their side landing in the town, and uniformed men and women rushing out taking charge. I could hear a lot of movement on the train itself, and knew that their employees would be going through every inch of it. The communication system crackled to life, and a man with a velvetly smooth voice announced that we would be leaving shortly. We'll leave it there for this week with, well, not the best of results, but it could have gone worse. At the End of the Line was written and performed by Richard Oliver. Holly Richard is our producer and editor. Find her on Twitter at RIBorbach, A-L-R-I-G-H-T-B-A-W-B-A-G-G. In this episode, Dr. Grace Young was played by Kat Moy. Find Kat on Twitter at CatOnPodcasts. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash chipmichael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savon podcast, which I highly recommend. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostAPogPodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send an email to podcast at gmail.com. For more information on the show, please go to our website, atthendelinepodcast.squarespace.com.